you know, when, when the stuff with the vampires is coming down the pipe and Ben Helsing's offering his advice, his expertise, and he's just like, would an enema help? Would an enema help? <laughs> you know, no one has said that it wouldn't. Welcome to B-Siders, a podcast to discuss and deconstruct perfectly adequate movies. Not good movies, not bad movies, just fine movies. So fine, in fact, you probably forgot they even exist. We're your hosts. I'm Ryan. I am Vlad. Vlad. <laughs> Dracul. And while Vlad Dracul and I uh, may not be nearly forget- as forgettable as these movies, uh, we probably run a close second. Although I wouldn't tell Vlad that he might impale you. That's right. Adequate films for adequate folk. Vlad, uh, what are we discussing today? Today we are discussing me. I, All I, of me. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, if you're if you're planning to do the entire episode in the accent, which I support, uh, I I'm tr- should I be adopting an accent as well? <laughs> I, I I can't hold it the whole episode. I'll be honest. <laughs> I was wondering if I could do the bit the entire thing. And I was like, no. <laughs> it'll be way too inconsistent um it will be as inconsistent as some of the accents in this movie uh well that that is an issue <laughs> uh, so, if you yeah. haven't put it together folks we are doing a dracula film a very a very particular dracula film one that i have very fond memories of yes because there is a slew of dracula films he got really big again in the 60s and 70s. Like, I think everybody remembers, you know, like, or it, when they think of Dracula, they think of the 1930s Bela Lugosi, um, you know, semi-retelling of the Nosferatu movie, loosely based on, you know, the actual book by Bram Stoker. But, like, Dracula had a resurgence in, like, the 60s and 70s when Hammer Horror was really huge. Like, there are so many Dracula movies out there. Yeah, a lot of Dracula movies, a lot of mediocre and the Dracula movies, but also some really good, solid stuff that has contributed to the uh, the the cinematic zeitgeist. I, I mean, arguably launched the careers of both Peter Cushing and Christopher Lee. I, and I mean, that was the thing is people forget that like Christopher Lee almost got typecast for the rest of his life because he was so damn good at playing Dracula. Um, and I, I mean, you're talking about two giants in the cinematic world in terms of just great character actors of their time. And they were tied into some very mediocre Dracula movies, but also some really excellent ones. Yeah. So you continue through the decades. Um, in 1992, we got Francis Ford Coppola's interpretation of Dracula. Which with Keanu. With Keanu Reeves, Gary Oldman as Dracula, which I love everything Gary Oldman does. Um, and I think that he should have been able to play Dracula in a less. I don't know about the the Coppola interpretation. I'm not I'm not the biggest fan. It's it's kind of a weird one. Yeah. Um, that cast is amazing. Stunning. Uh, Winona Ryder. Uh, who else? There is somebody else is in. Anthony Hopkins is Van Helsing. It's, Oh my, I knew it was right on the tip of my tongue. I was like, I am forgetting somebody major. That's right. Anthony Hopkins. Yeah. Um, I never say his last name, right. But Carrie Elways, is that, is that? Oh, his, that's his last right. Name? Carrie Elways. Yeah. Yeah. He's in it. That's right. Uh, uh, we're not talking about that one either though. <laughs> we no. are not. The one we're talking about 
that you really should have expected by now, folks. Uh, we're talking <laughs> about uh, 1995's Dracula, colon, dead and loving it. <laughs> Apostrophe, a movie uh, by Mel Brooks. That's not an apostrophe. Should have been a comma. I completely screwed that joke up. I apologize. You were uh, you had that right the first time around, sir. I'm I'm calling I'm calling your English teacher. You probably should. You call yourself a writer. (laughs) Dear God, man. Uh, Yeah, Dracula dead and loving it. Mel Brooks. Um, So real quick before we jump into it, I have a very particular like fond memory of this film um, because this was a movie that I remember watching when it first released on video. Uh, when I had to stay home sick. So I had like some sort of like seasonal flu. I was just a little kid, you know, and my mom was like, um, you know, I'll stay home with you and maybe we can rent a, a, a movie or something like that to, to just sort of pass the time in the afternoon. And I don't remember why, because it, it wouldn't have been in our normal wheelhouse as a family. My mom rented Dracula Dead and Loving It, and she and I watched it on the couch one afternoon uh, while I drank Sprite. And I, I have always associated this movie with just kind of that nice little like slice of life moment. I, I really do still adore this movie for a lot of reasons. I agree with you. I think there are some reasons that it's very adequate considering what it's up against, especially in the Mel Brooks pantheon. But this is a fun movie. I'm, I'm actually really thrilled to talk about this one. I would argue that maybe this movie risks being overhyped because it is a Mel Brooks film. Yes. Who he has turned out some really great iconic stuff. He has also done some meh stuff. Yeah. It's the nature of comedy and it, show it business, is, you know, everything can't be a home run. It, it, it's, it's true. And uh, this this particular film, I think, is is an interesting turning point just in in the terms of lampoon movies in general, because Mel Brooks didn't have the steadiest of paces. But I mean, oftentimes I think that was a good thing. It worked in his favor. He put out fairly quality product most of the time, like you said. But shortly after this, around 2000 is when we've got the first scary movie. And that is mm-hmm. what ushered in like the Jason Friedberg era, where like every single year from 2000 until like 2015 we got some sort of like lampoon movie and they just got progressively worse and worse and worse and i kind of point to dracula dead and loving it as the last of the great lampoon movies um and i i i think it still stands up among mel brooks's work it's just maybe not his best i think there are two films after this that are spoof movies that i enjoy Okay. Um, and that would be not another teen movie. That um, is a great movie. Actually. I actually I, think I, that I, one's pretty solid. Yeah, that is a really, you, I, I'll give you that one. Yep. Uh, and also scary movie three. I think scary movie three. <laughs> okay. Is probably the best of the scary movies. Gotcha. Uh, and that's, and I would say that's because the Zuckers got their hands on that script. Oh, interesting. I didn't know mm-hmm. that as well okay. as bringing in another, uh, spoof uh legend who stars in dracula leslie nielsen leslie nielsen so it, i i have to say one of the most amazing things about uh dracula dead and loving it as i was watching it on my second pass um it occurred to me how much of a borderline lookalike he is for Bella lugosi like he is actually yes. an incredible casting in the role of dracula because he looks uh, remarkably similar to to Lugosi, and he his Dracula in this film is hilarious. He channels he channels all the iconic 
Dracula's. In he my does. Opinion. Like he's he's got the Lugosi's look. He's also got uh, you know, they do the the dig at the Gary Oldman's ridiculous wig and <laughs> you may Francis think my whole fucking hair off. Yes. Yeah. Some of these moments are also very iconic, uh like Christopher Lee Dracula bits. Yes. Um I think there's when some he, uh, Frank Langelia in there. When he really does like horror moments as which they are few and far between and they are often punctuated with a joke but he he does nail like the christopher lee like hyper intense dracula yeah i i was curious why um it's something i noticed in the film is when we first uh-huh. meet him uh he is heavily made up like he's got yes. the eyeliner the red lipstick he's powdered very very white um but by the time he comes to the uk uh he's way more toned down yeah so i i i can go a couple of different directions in terms of thought with this one is i i still think it feels like a nod to the gary oldman dracula because gary oldman's dracula is super made up and very pale and washed out but then when he walks among the municipality which people forget in the original text of Dracula, Dracula was not forbidden from going out in the sunlight. He he actually did like walk around in, in London. He was just limited. Um, but yeah, when Gary Oldman would go out into the world, uh, he looked much more human. And so that's I, I, I don't know if they're like splitting the difference between the two ideas. One being that Dracula has in you know the text, he has one look when he is like as a monster and another look when he's just trying to pass among people, or if it's just, again, a dig at uh, Coppola's version. Uh, could, yeah, it could be um, the, it's very interesting because the original text, like the original novel of Dracula is um, you could argue it has never been faithfully adapted, including it, by Bram Stoker himself. Like he wrote the play version as well. So like, you know, you're allowed <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's your ip you do what you want right um, well so i i, I have how long has it been since you've read dracula uh it's been probably five seven years for those of you who like last read it in high school and it's been like 20 years or something like that if you recall dracula is not written like a typical narrative it is very very much in like it, one of the things i think is so cool about it is it's in the form of letters and diary entries and it shifts perspective very often. And that's, I think what makes it really kind of a challenge to, to channel into an effective like film adaptation because it doesn't have a fixed point of view. It's so varied that I think that most audiences would find it very confusing. This is called epistolary writing. Yeah. I, Uh, I, 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 Adore it. I, I I don't know that I've ever read a book that has done it better. Dracula is actually on like my top 10 favorite reads of all time. I really remember being gripped by Dracula and I've never found a, a, a text quite like it that, that captured that same energy. Uh, but being written that way, it, yeah. it can be, it can also be hard for the yes. reader to sure. try to go into it. Uh, one thing that's very interesting about the novel is how little Dracula himself is actually in it. He's not in it. Yeah. Um, which is kind of cool for your big bad. I it, it's it, it. I actually think it's terribly effective. It's you know, you know, everybody talks about Jaws as being like you know we didn't show the monster and so it made him even scarier. It's like well, Dracula did it a hundred years earlier. Uh, but we're not gonna 
wax poetic about yeah. Brahms Dracula. We're going to talk about I'm, Mel Brooks' yeah. Dracula. Mel Brooks' Dracula. Yeah, do go on, sir. Do go on. Uh, this uh, was written by Mel Brooks, Steve Haberman, and Rudy DeLuca. It was directed by Mel Brooks. It's actually his last directorial uh, film. I feel like I did know that. Um, but it, it stars Leslie Nielsen as the Count and uh, Mel Brooks as Van Helsing, <laughs> uh, a very Yiddish uh, <laughs> German <laughs> physician. This movie also has uh, some uh, like uh, some reused actors uh, um, from previous Mel Brooks movies. Like I, oh, I think of Amy uh, yeah. Yazbek as Mina, who we know from uh, Robin Hood Men in Tights. Um, I also love Peter McNichol as Renfield. Most people will remember him from Ghostbusters 2 as the museum curator. He always puts on these very funny accents. And like his my, my favorite line of his in any movie is when he's pointing to one of his artists in the uh, in the museum. He goes, everything you're doing is bad. I want you to know this. Um <laughs> <laughs> Uh, but his manic presentation of Renfield is, it, I, I think it, it's some of the most, uh, it's some of the best, like physical humor in the whole movie. Uh, he next to, um, next to Leslie Nielsen, I think he has some of the best uh, facial comedy. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. Um, uh, but yeah, there's actually a lot of actors, um, reused from other, I think even from men in tights. The, uh, yeah, I think so. Hood spoof. Uh, I, I think Megan Kavanaugh, uh, Essie is. Uh, oh yeah, that, that's that's her, uh, Maid Marian's. Yes, exactly. Yep. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, and it's wonderful to hear Amy Asbeck's um, over the top British accent again. <laughs> uh, everyone's British accent is over the top ridiculous on purpose. I, I, I and I think. Uh, Stephen Weber as as Harker, his whole presentation of, but I can't. I'm British. Like throughout the entire movie, in the movie, it's <laughs> just how repressed he is. It's so so funny. <laughs> well, it's this is this is one of the things I want to talk about with this movie okay. yeah. is that um, it's a spoof film. It's a, it's a parody. It's it's poking fun at the Hollywood. Um, dracula franchise mm-hmm. and um there's a lot of slapstick in this movie a lot of yes. really dumb slapstick but uh it, it's also kind of funny this film also i think does a really good job at the social commentary that i would argue dracula itself was trying to present sure. in terms of uh, commentary on victorian sensibilities and mm-hmm. repressed sexuality <laughs> yes um it's it's just fantastic uh most of your women characters are like these big bosomed (laughs) females (laughs) but but see this is the thing about like mel brooks and his lampoon films versus something like epic movie or meet the spartans brooks usually did weave social commentary into his work i mean there's no better example of it than than blazing saddles uh right like it's you know he there was always an underlying intelligence to what he did and like i think a good satirist should do his works were as much homage to what he was making fun of as they were out out and out making fun of it so i i completely agree there's uh, some really good just 
Victorian commentary underlying this entire movie, despite the fact that it's filled with a lot of slapstick. Yeah, because uh, there's a lot of academics have debated for, you know, over a century now at this point, um, the different themes in Stoker's Dracula Mm -hmm. in terms of like gendered identity, race and sexuality and uh, this idea of the the new woman and uh, whatnot. And I think Mel Brooks does a really good job of just kind of hitting you over the head with it. <laughs> um, because Lucy is very, um, uh, she's very promiscuous. Uh huh. Yeah. She's kind of a nothing character, but her only yeah. purpose is to be Dracula's first victim. Um, but the scene, yeah, the scene when she's come back to life and she's like trying to seduce Harker. <laughs> funny as hell number one funny as hell mainly because steve weber's harker is just so uptight and british that he's just so uncomfortable with all of this i, I want to know if like after filming this movie did did steve weber like have muscle pains because he holds <laughs> himself so rigidly the entire film in and it, 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 it's clearly Part of the bit is he's just so about everything. You can tell he's clenching his ass. Like, (laughs) yes. And Brooks was like, all right, now, Stephen, at this scene, I want you to really feel the broomstick up your ass. (laughs) Uh, But just like the scene where she's just like, oh, we can be together, Jonathan. I've seen the way you look at me. And Uh he's just like, but Lucy. I'm British in a, again, really over the top, terrible British accent. But he's like, I'm British. And she responds by like shoving her cleavage in his face, being like, so are these. I'm like, that's an excellent counterpoint. Uh, you know, and he, that, he falls back on I'm British a couple of times. And yes. it, it just it always makes me laugh. <laughs> well, and you see it again later when Mina has started to come under the influence. Yes. And she becomes more. Uh, seductive and he's he's her fiance and like there 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 is a joke in there that i don't know how i didn't catch it earlier it's you know it's after they they're caught and she's like you know trying to get handsy with him and uh (laughs) the doctor's like after only being engaged for five years i find you like this This is great. Like, uh, like it, this is that Victorian sensibility is like yes. even your betrothed, the person you're going to marry, that you would ostensibly be well within your rights to touch in any sort of way, um, was completely out of line. <laughs> Yeah, I, I mean, you would you would think that there, um, you know, obviously within the, the the realms of it all being consensual and all that, you would think though there there, there would be some sort of physical romance at, at all between uh, b- between a betrothed couple, like something. And he is just so completely hands off, uh, which just makes it all the funnier when both Lucy and Mina throw themselves at him. Um, they, I, you get you get kind of a, a taste of it earlier in the movie with uh, Renfield and the two children of the night. When he's like in bed and he's like, no, this is, this is wrong. That's my knee you're straddling. And then as they like, you know. Yeah, when he wakes up and sees them and your his first thought is not like, ooh, yeah. hot ladies. It's, it's, what are you doing to the furniture? <laughs> 
Oh, you do into the furniture. <laughs> oh yeah, and then <laughs> the yeah. line is like, "This is wrong, wrong." I tell wrong. you, wrong me, wrong my wrong brains me. out, <laughs> wrong me again. <laughs> oh man, again, just I, I, I think Peter McNichol is a, a terribly underrated uh, actor, and his his over the top delivery in this movie is just he is such a great foil actually to Harker. Renfield and Harker are like opposite sides of the same coin because Renfield is like all of that British like you know repressedness released once Dracula takes him over and he's just he's like just completely over the top (laughs) whereas Harker when presented with ostensibly the same situation twice where someone is coming onto him he maintains that very like upright tightness to him I don't know if that was an intentional choice but it certainly plays out very nicely in the movie and they're also both idiots they are both complete idiots. Like the when but, uh, <laughs> when when Renfield loses them on the lawn. <laughs> just, it's so hard to like describe it, but it's just yeah, his just like little juke back and forth in place, and then just lost him. <laughs> I think uh, Mel Brooks has the the line. He's like, "We're in luck." I'm like, why? He is an imbecile. <laughs> in the novel it's harker that goes to transylvania yes Um, yeah 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 and they um bring that again in the coppola version Mm -hmm. um but a lot of times that role goes to renfield as to explain kind of like why he went insane so the renfield character I'm, i'm curious about because he's clearly like kind of a a send up of basically any little like mincing minion or like, you know, the, the humpback or or whatever uh, that, that we kind of like assume to be like a needed part of, of um, you know, these, these like old monster movies. What was the original? Do you think, or do you think that that stereotype is just an an amalgamation? No, like, cause Renfield is in the book. Well, yeah, Um, yeah, yeah, absolutely. No, I'm talking about this portrayal of Renfield. Hmm. Um, I don't know because uh, again, like going back to the book and like the play, uh, yeah. he's, he is an inmate at the sanitarium and yeah. attributes his lunacy to being under Dracula's control. Right. Um, he gives like a little bit of exposition on it, but not, not a whole lot. Um, so you can assume that once Dracula landed in Whitby, um, yep. He just like chose Renfield, but yeah, he is very much like a like an Igor, yeah, exactly uh, type of character. Yeah, and uh, I, I didn't know if that was again an intentional choice. It, it, it the only reason that I, I even like entertain the idea is because it's Mel Brooks, and there is a lot of intelligence to the writing. Um, and so I'm just I'm curious about that. Yeah, he, but yeah, <laughs> Peter McNichol delivers in this movie. Uh, he, he just Does nonstop he delivery. <laughs> It's it's just so so fantastic. He he nails it. I I think that there are I, I can't really point to a single casting in this movie that's disappointing. Like I, I think that for the most part, everybody who is in their role just really really hits at home. Yeah, I would argue that this movie is not only a good spoof; it's also mm-hmm. a good Dracula movie. Like it really <laughs> is a good Dracula movie. There's. 
I mean, yes, there's a lot of buffoonery to it. Um, yep. But it hits all the Dracula notes very well, very well, um, and also manages to keep some of that like horror tension in yeah. some of these m- moments. Um, when Dracula, the whole build up to Dracula coming to Lucy. It's all very well done. It's very dramatic and serious right up until the bat face plants in the window. <laughs> On the, the closed window. Yeah. And he has to like climb in. Is <laughs> is is very funny. Um and then they come in, they search the room because they heard a commotion. They don't see anything. It's a very classic gag that nobody ever looks up. Nobody ever looks up. Yep. And there's Dracula. And if they looked up, there would have been full spread. <laughs> which Dracula <laughs> that's not necessary the the character can shapeshift like right. he could have literally disappeared in a fog uh, yeah that's one that of his abilities is, is he can yeah. he can turn into like smoke or fog yeah uh instead he is sticking himself tenuously to the ceiling so so, so such a fragile stick that, yeah, that a <laughs> the door slams <laughs> and he falls like dead weight just just face plant yes (laughs) um but then he comes up on her he does like the the christopher lee like cloak thing as he goes to bite her uh and then it's punctuated of course by the sound of the straw juice box sounds (laughs) just (laughs) uh it's, it's fantastic um i love that they when they first meet dracula they're at the theater they're at the Lyceum Theater, which is a little okay. bit trivia, because that's oh. where Bram Stoker worked. Uh, oh, interesting. That put on the stage show of Dracula. Very cool. Also, one of his inspirations was, uh, what was his name? I think the actor's name was Henry Irving. Had okay. a very theatrical presence um, that Dracula kind of evokes. Oh, that's kind of cool. Mm-hmm. I dig that. That's really neat. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. The, the, the Vlad the Impaler part was I think just lucky. He just kind okay. of stumbled across <laughs> this name. It was like Vlad that sounds cool. cool. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. You know, Transylvania sounds exotic enough. It's you know sure. It, it, I, I mean it, the it, it is such a weird um riff essentially on Eastern European culture and mythology. Because I mean it, I, I actually took a uh the class was called Eastern European folklore. Um, but I took a, a class in college that was essentially a, it was about vampires. That's, that's what we studied was, was vampires and the actual Eastern European folklore surrounding vampires is very different from what Dracula is and way different from the way that, that we kind of perceive it now. Um, and so it is kind of funny that like Stoker really pulled together all these like little, little bits and pieces of things that he seemed to, to kind of have like a passing knowledge of and fold them together in this really odd way uh, that has become like iconic. Somehow he supplanted all of the rest of this culture and, and history uh, to create uh, the Dracula that we know and love. It's, it's just like loosely inspired by so many things. If you, this is where Josh plugs another podcast. Uh, <laughs> the, <laughs> The podcast Lore, one of their first episodes, actually talks about vampire folklore and mm, sure. where it came from and how it evolved and where some of it has even persisted into fairly recent times. Okay. Um, but also including a little bit of 
uh, trivia here, Stoker's novel was largely inspired by the New England vampire pandemic. Oh, interesting. Yes, everybody was dying of um, tuberculosis, which they called consumption. And, you know, medical science being what it was at the time, uh, people were like, oh, it's probably vampires. And, you know, that that, this fear set in. Even like the like the 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 look of vampires is largely inspired by a complete misunderstanding of how the body putrefied after being buried like that's that, that's a lot of like you know like the vampire's hair and nails growing even unto death it's it's all about like bodies decaying and just medical science didn't understand it at the time exactly exactly yeah and if you if you read up or listen to this podcast um it goes into detail about some of the stuff and uh, news reports on this stuff. Um, you made its way across the pond and Bram Stoker was like, Hmm, that's very interesting. Oh, very, how interesting. Yes. <laughs> His shadow, Dracula's shadow I, is also another one of the best bits of this movie. Yes. It, the, the shadow almost has like a Dorian gray quality to it. <laughs> mm-hmm. Where like Dracula suffers no injury, but the shadow is like constantly in pain. <laughs> yes. So we first, so the shadow bits, uh, the shadow uh, creeps up on Renfield in the castle in a very yes. Nosferatu uh, homage. It creeps yes. up and then Dracula stops the shadow and calls uh, it back. <laughs> Dracula slips down the stairs in fall guano <laughs> uh in in just a very textbook cowboy switch uh just <laughs> falls down pops up perfectly fine and goes back up the stairs no problem and then you see the shadow get up and it's like struggling it's it's limping feeling a lot of pain yep. <laughs> uh in the dance with the dance uh, mina yep. uh the shadow can't control himself there and he starts dry humping <laughs> mina's shadow so a quick note on this. I, I will say that some of the just like <laughs> gratuitous sexual humor in this movie does nudge it more into the territory of being a mediocre uh, uh, Mel Brooks film. Like it's not like his movies are completely devoid of it, but it, this movie leans into it a lot. And some of that could be part of what you were saying, like just commentary on like the Victorian repressiveness. In a, uh, but <laughs> this movie kind of goes over the top with some of the crotch and humping jokes. Well, and I would argue that some of these Dracula films, like the serious Dracula films, really kind of lean into the 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 sexual tension okay. and, and humor stuff. Just just even with uh, you know, the the vampire brides coming in on on Harker and Coppola's good version. Point. Yep. Um just the the intensity, uh the, there's just this not so subtle subtext. Yeah, in, good point. in all these stories. Where Mel Brooks is like, let's just throw the subtext out entirely. <laughs> <laughs> let's have Mina grab Harker by the cock. Like, just she just stick her hand right in there. <laughs> All right. I'll touch you. Mina. I'll touch you. <laughs> Mina. His block is, I don't know how many times they rehearsed that moment, but like she goes in for it and his block is right on time. <laughs> <laughs> Well, comedy is time. Comedy, comedy is, is all timing. timing. Comedy is all timing. Yeah. And uh, this this movie is not for a lack of it. <laughs> yeah. Oh, uh, backtrack real quick. They were at the theater, yeah, yeah. the Lyceum Theater. Um, they're watching Faust, which I also and, thought was very interesting. 
the the Faustine music actually comes up a few times. Um, so they they're watching the play Faust, and then the uh, in the the public dance scene where they're dancing in front of the mirror, and this is how they prove you know that Dracula is a vampire. The uh, song that he asks them to like cue up is typically associated with the play Faust. The the the, the uh, Faust that play. I did not know. Yeah, so it's um, that that song is really uh, often associated with stage performances of Faust, and so it's it, it, they they nod to that a couple of times. Uh, and for people who don't know, Faust is a the storyline of Faust is uh, a man has made a deal with the devil, well Mephistopheles, to uh, prolong his life and like have great success. And there's a, a certain parallel there to vampirism and Dracula. Would- which I will say Mephistopheles is probably my favorite name for the devil ever. I think it's just that it's just wonderful. Um, But uh, it's really good. Uh, Faust is like the original deal with the devil story, isn't it? Like it's, it's the, I mean, outside of like, you know, just like the biblical uh, allegories, but I I think like in, in pop culture, so to speak, as it's Faust is a couple hundred years old. It's like the original deal with the devil story. Some of the other great bits is the, the last word. Oh yeah, where they're they're just the shouting at each other, in Moldovan. Yeah, <laughs> Moldavian. Like, in, uh, I, and I think the the subtitle says in made up Moldavian. But yeah, exactly. <laughs> oh my gosh, so, which is why they're not translated. <laughs> this this just occurred to me. <laughs> Peter McNichol. Again, this is another connection to him in uh, Ghostbusters too. Vigo the Carpathian is a Moldovian uh, tyrant and is kind of like a, oh, a, a yeah. Dracula send up. <laughs> I didn't, this didn't even occur to me until we started talking about the last word fight, but yeah, that's another fun connection. (laughs) Oh, so he's just playing the same role again. He just keeps playing the same role because he's a thrall in that movie too. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Yeah, no, the, the last word fight. And I, and I love that uh, Van Helsing does get truly the last word after uh, Dracula is vanquished and he opens up his coffin one more time and shouts at him. (laughs) Does he though? What do you mean? Wait, what am I? What, what, did I miss something? And like, <laughs> oh, you did. You really got to watch these credits, my friend. Oh, is it's a credits? Mm. See, at the very is... end of the credits, when the WB logo comes up, Leslie Nielsen shouts, "Shivanya!" Laps. <sighs> Damn it! I I am so disappointed is... in myself. So, which is. <laughs> It's a pretty layered thing because on the surface you're like, ah, there's the joke. Uh, <laughs> but it's also a good nod to the whole like, is Dracula really dead sort of thing. That is very yes. common in the yep. in, in send-ups of the story. Is you're never quite sure, is this evil actually gone? Right. Uh, and Mel Brooks decides to do that in the most ludicrous way he could. I, I do love Renfield scooping up the ashes, putting it in the coffin and drawing a little smiley face on him and going, you're starting to look like your old self already. <laughs> Just... Oh man. I see. And, and that's, I, I guess I, I kind of naturally assume like post-credit scenes are like a trope at this point in modern culture. Like you, mm-hmm. it's, it's just sort of assumed. Um, but I, Anything prior to like 2002, I almost assume that there's there is nothing there because we it just wasn't a thing. Um, well, here's the reason I watched the credits. Yeah, go um, for it. It's because I want to respect and appreciate everyone that worked on these movies. 
Yeah, no, that was that's a, not why. That's, that was a, <laughs> thanks. That, that was a nice placation there. That was very patronizing. No, <laughs> <laughs> no because uh, some of the spoof movies, like some of the Zucker spoof movies, um, I know Naked Gun did this and okay. um, Spy Hard and Wrongfully Accused, which also starred Leslie Nielsen, those yeah. two films. Um, there are jokes in the credits. Like if okay. you read the credits, there are jokes oh. woven in them to see if you're paying attention. You can laugh throughout the credits. Sort of like uh, the, the the Monty Python at the beginning, uh, like the the moose handler. And yes. uh, yeah, okay, gotcha. Yeah. Yep. A lot of humor in this movie. A lot of good stuff. Yeah. In this movie. Um, the, I think the gag with Doctor Seward is really funny. It's kind of a nod to how bad science like medical science was at the time (laughs) the enema gag yes uh again because in in real life uh nobody knew what tuberculosis was nobody knew why corpses don't decay at a normal pace in the dead of winter Mm -hmm. um you know so they fall back on these superstitions dr seward's uh you know he's the head of this medical institute which is even today like mental health stuff is very behind it, it, you know, it is uh his solution is just give him an enema give him an enema <laughs> just constantly <laughs> just <laughs> you know with, with the stuff with the vampires is coming down the pipe and ben helsing's <laughs> offering his advice his expertise and he's just like would an enema help would an enema help <laughs> Which, you know no one has said that it wouldn't has anyone it's, tried to give a vampire an enema? What would happen? You know what? To be to be fair, one of the original ways to destroy a vampire was with running water. You know, I, I think they were you know more. Well, in they the, could. Yeah, the, they couldn't cross it, right? Right. Well, uh, they they could not cross it. That was that also goes back to just like vampire folklore about like can they cross certain boundaries and 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 all that kind of stuff. But um, uh, sidebar: the Count on uh, Sesame Street is actually an incredibly accurate portrayal of vampires because one of the ticks of vampires is that they must count things. And so like you could throw a vampire off by throwing rice in front of it because they would have to stop and count every single grain of rice. Um, And so he's actually a strangely accurate portrayal of real vampires. (laughs) Um, But uh, yeah, the (laughs) nobody's nobody is actually put into text that uh, no, an enema will not, in fact, stop a a vampire. Um, So until it has been attempted, we almost have to assume that there's the possibility that it could work. Do you uh, remember the robot chicken sketch? uh, Where it's the guy against the werewolf? No. And he like. He chops up like he defeats the werewolf, like chops it up into little bits, cooks it, eats it, shits it out later. He's got like massive Taco Bell style diarrhea and stuff. And then it goes and then it cuts. And this has all been like a hypothetical. And he's like, you tell me that wouldn't kill a werewolf. And he's like, no, you need silver. That is, first of all, that is so deliciously robot chicken uh, for them to do that. It's also just so like nerd culture to have those kinds of debates. <laughs> it's very you know? important. It, it, well, it is. So what? Well, hang on, makes hang on. A similar. Yeah. If you used a silver fork while eating the werewolf meat, would that would that suffice? Yeah. Well, God forbid someone uh, you run out of silver <laughs> forks at the town potluck. But that's going into werewolf folklore, and we're not we're not here for that. Uh, Maybe next Halloween. Maybe next uh, Halloween we'll do yeah, a werewolf movie. Mel Brooks kind of makes a similar joke uh, in Lucy's Crypt. 
because okay. it's like you guys take her through the heart and harker's like is there no other way and he's like well <laughs> you could chop her head off stuff her mouth with garlic all this stuff which i think is what they and then do rip her ears off. <laughs> yeah i if i remember right that's a reference again i think either to the coppola version or another version where they actually like do all that shit gotcha in the movie and mel brooks is like no we're gonna stick with the very classic like steak through the heart bit which this scene also highlights this this movie's just truly hysterical use of gore um like it and you you almost should see it coming when renfield gets the paper cut at the beginning of the movie and is just spraying blood all over the place (laughs) but you know there's this in joke where when they go to stake a vampire in these vampire movies they hit it and you see like a spray of blood come up from from inside the coffin Mm -hmm. um mel brooks takes this to the 30th degree and when harker stakes lucy there is a geyser of blood <laughs> that comes flying out <laughs> and then he has to hit her again and there's a second just explosion of that blood. second wave hits him so good <laughs> And, and Van Helsing's like she's almost dead and he goes she's dead enough <laughs> like, he's not going in for another hit. so uh, what I was reading about this scene was that Steve Weber did going in did not realize just how much he was going to get soaked in blood <laughs> of course not Oh no. Uh seriously. So I wonder uh how much of this scene was like almost kind of ad-libbed. Like yeah. were you supposed to go for like the rule of 3 with the joke and <laughs> and after the second one he's like no, I'm not doing this again. <laughs> He's dead enough. Uh, it has to be done by someone who loved her. I only liked her a little. Only... <laughs> Close, Close enough. enough. <laughs> Um, oh man. So a funny actually kind of note on this too, you know, the, the movie or the, the blood in this movie is like neon red, which I originally thought of as like just a nod to like, again, the, the fifties and sixties versions where like the blood was bright red and all that kind of stuff. This movie has a PG 13 rating. And I'm very curious if part of the reason that they did bright red blood was to maintain that because there is so much blood in this movie and the darker you make blood, the more realistic it looks, the closer you, you hedge a movie to becoming an R and I'm, I'm curious for, <laughs> for your thoughts on this. Do you think the neon red fountain of blood that erupts from uh, Lucy was this just a, an effort to maintain a, a PG 13 rating? Well, yes, because the way they shoot that scene, you don't show the stake going into Lucy. That's true. Yeah. You just see him down there, hammer going into the coffin, <laughs> the coffin. and this ridiculous geyser of, of bright red blood. <laughs> um, I also think it's one of the examples of how this movie is very, it's shot like it's on stage. Like it's a very stage presentation that's that's really interesting yeah because you know what now that i think about that that in that scene the camera never shifts 
So no. like when Van Helsing even pops out from behind the pillar to say that he's got to hit her again, there is no like cut to him. There's no pan in. There's no change in in, in camera. Uh, yeah, it's it, it stays very static, which does very much feel like a stage presentation. Yeah, you have the big um, the big backdrop in the beginning as the coach is going through the mountains. It's, it's beautifully painted. Um, the yes. wide shot of the sanitarium. Uh, the shot of Carfax Abbey. Mm-hmm. It's like, these are all very theatrical set pieces. Yes. I feel like, which in itself, I think is a, a, a tribute to uh, the Dracula franchise. Well, I, I mean the original Bella Lugosi film, when you look at the sets in that movie, there's almost something a little heartbreaking about it. Cause it, it feels like we don't make sets like that anymore. Most of this stuff that would be a massive set piece like that is is just going to be CG'd. It'll be, you know, a couple of set pieces, but largely green screened. And then they, you know, fill in the rest with digital art, which I, I mean, it's fine. But again, as we've discussed before, like there is just a certain weight missing from um, digital effects. And those practical sets looked incredible. Like when when Dracula is first introduced in the, the Lugosi film, he he looks larger than life, and I think a lot of it has to do with just the set that he's on. There's also a good nod to um, that classic horror movie effect when they do the white light across the eyes. Yes, yeah, that's um, very that was signature, like that was signature Lugosi yep. era. But it was also um, you see it a few times throughout this film uh, when someone is under Dracula's influence, uh, especially mm-hmm. Mina when she's under Dracula's influence in the bedroom, like it's a bright scene, but if you look closely, you see her eyes are, you know, they have an extra strip of, of lighting there and you can tell she's under the, the thrall there a little bit. Yeah. Uh, the, the bat at the beginning when Renfield goes to the castle, the bat, you know, that's a very obvious, like (laughs) it's a real rubber bat. It's very, (laughs) it's very stagey, you know, it's very, um, which I found perfectly charming. Yeah, a- absolutely. All these little like nods and and touches really create the atmosphere of this film, which I think is a, it's like a difficult thing to describe if you if you haven't seen it. And it's also why I like we were talking about this movie actually hits on a lot of like just Dracula notes. It feels like it's in universe with a lot of these other Dracula films and a I, a great deal of that, it, it, as you're pointing out, has to do just with how it's shot and chopped. It's yeah. Now that you say it, it, it does. It looks like a stage production. No, like the opening, the whole opening of that film, um, if it wasn't for the title being Dracula dead and loving it, <laughs> uh, that whole opening sequence is very serious and dark. It is. Yeah. Like with the, uh, the illustrations of like the, the demons and the nightmares and, mm-hmm. and, you know, the, the different monsters, um, it's, it's actually a really, it's a really effective horror movie opening. And that leads me to, um, is that why this movie didn't do as well as it could have? Okay. Um, you know, it had a budget of 30 million. It's box office was only 10. Really? Yeah. This movie did not do well. I think I it has done better in like a later years cult following where people yeah. picked it up and be like, Oh, you know, this is not that bad. Um, I think I would argue part of the reason is because it came out in December. Uh, that's a weird time. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's really weird. 
if you look at some other Mel Brooks films, this movie is weak compared to them. Uh, Princess I, uh, Men in Tights is fantastic. Young Frankenstein, just absolutely brilliant. Stunning. And, um, you know, Blazing Saddles, uh, Spaceballs. Spaceballs. Just, you know, but he's also had some stuff that's been fairly meh. I think that he, I think Mel Brooks has his, his obvious just stone cold classics like history of the world, young Frankenstein blazing saddles. I think, I think that these are like unquestionably some of like the, the greatest like lampoon comedies ever put to uh, put to screen. And then I, like I, I, I do enjoy Robin Hood men in tights, but I think it's now starting to hedge more into like the, the ridiculousness territory, which is fine because it's still, it, it still very much stands up. I think Spaceballs is probably the most effective, uh, like retelling of a Star Wars kind of movie as a as as a comedy. I, I but I would I would put, I would put Dracula Dead and Loving It in that same vein. I don't think it's one of his best works, but I'm I'm shocked to hear that it was such a a financial failure on its first run. Um, and even as I'm looking at the IMDb uh, for it, I mean, it's it's got a, a rating of, of 5.5 out of 10 or 5.8 out of 10, which is right on the edge of being like like a zonk. It's it, it's not great. So I, I yeah, th- I'm curious about this. I I would imagine one of the problems would be people want to compare it to Young Frankenstein. Because okay, that's Frankenstein fair. Frankenstein was him tackling the Frankenstein monster genre, and then he's yep. doing it again 20 years later with the Dracula genre. Yeah. Um, and it's and Gene not Wilder like, is just hard to top. Like Leslie Nielsen is amazing, but Gene Wilder is just, he's, he's just excellent. No, that uh, young Frankenstein is a masterpiece. It is. Um, and it, it's, it's hard to try to go reach those. Things. That. Yep. Um, I would argue that, the flaws of this movie have to do with the way they balance the dramatic horror with the comedy. Okay. Um, because at times when it's playing up the horror angle, it does a very good job, but then you're okay. almost like jarred out of it with like a really dumb joke. <laughs> like when, uh, Dracula lifts Harker off the ground and is, you know, so, like threatening him and saying, you know, I'm going to kill you and take your betrothed. And there's absolutely nothing that you can do about it. And it's sinister. And it's like the moment really does Royal. And again, that's where I think he very much channels the, the Christopher Lee Dracula. And then Harker just pokes him in the eyes. And <laughs> yes, <laughs> the total subversion. Yep. Uh, yeah. It's really funny, but it's, yeah. Yeah, it's kind of over the top. Some of the jokes, I think uh, the movie slows down a second because it's like giving audience time to process and laugh. And I was like, ah, that should be a little bit quicker. Like, okay. um, they're introducing Van Helsing and all his credentials. And he's like, <laughs> and, and gynecology. And Sewer goes, oh, I didn't know you had your hand in that too. It's a very funny joke that I missed as a kid because I didn't know what a kind of college is. Exactly. Was. Yeah. Um, but the movie waits for you to get it. It does. Yeah. No, and that's that's a, that's a good a call reaction, out. which, again, yeah. works on stage. But not sure. Film. Well, because on stage, you actually would hear the audience reaction and you want to pause for the audience to react so that you're not, you're not then delivering lines over top of a bunch of laughs. So, yeah, no, I, I agree. That's that's that is actually an, an, an excellent point. The dance with Mina goes 
way too long. It's a scene that I'm like, why is it here? Uh, the dance at the castle, not the not yeah, yeah, the yeah, no reveal. Uh, and I, I, I agree. I, I was actually the that that dance is almost broken up into two acts, like one where we get the initial reveal, and then a second act which is just all slapstick, where they're like doing really like you know uh, highly acrobatic ballroom, like professional, you know, uh, competitive ballroom maneuvers, um, just to play up for laughs that Mina is you know alone in in the mirror. But it, that that part does actually kind of drag. Like, I, as you know, having once competitively ballroom danced myself, I can tell you, I think it's like super impressive. It's also terribly obvious when it's not Leslie Nielsen because he is, you know, at that age was not capable of such things. No. Um, but but at the same time, uh, I, it, that's the, the second act of that dance probably was unnecessary. No, uh, the. I would argue the the ballroom scene is fine. It goes a little long. They could have right, truncated that's, it a little bit. The yeah, yeah, scene yeah. <clears throat> when he uh, you know first takes her away to the abbey and has mm-hmm. that candlelight dance with him, like it's good. But I was like, what is the point of the scene? Uh, yeah, we do get two dance scenes with them actually. Now that you back, like back to back almost that very back to back. Yeah, that's an odd like, editing choice. I was like, is this all specifically to get the shadows? dry humping joke i i feel like that was like <laughs> mel brooks just wanted the shadows to to hump each other and so he's like we've got to figure out a way to work it in but it's um you know mina's ad- abduction scene is so um it's great it's very again very dracula dramatic you know he puts the housekeeper to sleep he puts mina under his thrall and then again, his mental powers go a little askew. It happens a few times in this movie, uh, but they go a little askew. <laughs> so, hang it's on. almost on, like an Abbott and Costello bit. On on the note of his mental powers going askew, my favorite favorite moment of this is in the playhouse <laughs> when the, the usher opens up the curtains and delivers the message after she's forgotten it the look of horror and shock on dracula's face it is it is just such a testament to leslie nielsen as a physical actor because I think that's like the hardest I laugh in the whole movie is when she's like delivering the message that she's forgotten about and he's looking at her like, what the fuck is going on? Don't tip. Oh, that you remember. That you remember. <laughs> oh, man. Uh and in in with uh, getting back to Damina's abduction scene, I <laughs> also just enjoy that like <laughs> when he's trying to like carry her off, and at first he has her 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 maid, and he's and like it, you know it's like come with me, you will be my bride forever, and she's like oh I can't wait, and he goes not you, and then comes back, then comes back, and now he's rushing through the speeches, like come with me, you will be my bride forever. <laughs> yeah, like, when he first when he first comes out, it's very sinister and dramatic, and you're yes. like oh my god, and then it's the fucking maid. <laughs> <laughs> oh man, in a very classic uh, ah for fuck's sake. Yeah, exactly. It's <laughs> exactly what that becomes. <laughs> Uh, uh, just, 
but I mean, speaking to the the, the dichotomy of that moment, I, I definitely understand like uh, where where you're coming from, and uh, like there there is a lot that is played very seriously in like the the vein of a true ho- Dracula horror movie, only to all of a sudden like flip that switch hard and and dive into. So I, here's here's what I'll say to all that. <clears throat> This movie, I think, of all of Brooks's films, leans more on slapstick as comedy rather than like the the subtlety and and like intelligence of, of the delivery. There's a lot of physical comedy in this movie, and so it, I think that if it feels jarring in those transitions, it's because the the comedy is arising from a a more like openly ridiculous moment instead of like that subtle satire and this movie could have benefited maybe from more of the subtle satire uh, and a little bit less of the, uh, the slapstick. Um, I just don't think that the, the satire was as much um, Mel Brooks's wheelhouse as, as parody and uh, uh, God, what is that vein of comedy? Is it just parody? I think there's another style to it where he's not necessarily making you know, a commentary <clears throat> on something you, you think about the, um, you think about the comedy in Joe versus the volcano. Yeah. It all, it all fits in is done where like everybody's playing it straight. Yeah. Sort of thing. Uh, this, this movie is very much like we're making fun of these things. I'm wondering if it's because of the genre, how do you balance those, those two, different genres because you're like you're doing horror you're doing classic gothic horror uh, yeah. with with the slapstick so <laughs> what i will say because I'm, I'm looking at some of his other works right now i'm i'm curious who was like <clears throat> involved in the writing process and he does tend to like uh he does tend to um team write like i i, I don't know that there are any uh any of Mel Brooks's movies that, well, he, he was the only writer on history of the world. Um, but like he wrote young Frankenstein with Gene Wilder. Um, yeah. and he, he had a, a team with in, in space balls and he had a team in, uh, in blazing saddles. And I'm, I'm just wondering if like the other writers on this film weren't necessarily able to kind of keep up with, with Brooks. Um, and I, I I'm, I'm, I'm searching it right now to see like what else they, they worked on. Um, but I, I, I think that there's the, the potential that this is just a, strictly a failure of, of uh, script writing. Maybe. Uh, I see what that could be. I just, I just checked out the library. I checked out his memoir all about me. Okay. Um, as well as I checked out a book about Jewish comedy. Okay. So I guess like Jewish comedy is like a specific type of thing, which when you okay. see it, you probably get it immediately. Yeah. You're like, oh, okay, this is Jewish comedy. Um, but I want to read the book a little bit. So I sound a little more like I know what I'm talking <laughs> about. <laughs> yeah. So it looks like, it looks like this, this was largely written by, um, well, 
So we've got Roy DeLuca and Steve Haberman were the the other two writers on this. Steve Haberman um, also contributed to uh, Love Stinks, or I'm sorry, Life Stinks, which is another Mel Brooks film that is also like wildly mediocre, apparently. I don't know that I've ever seen this movie. Um, <clears throat> I, I'm, I, I just wonder if, uh, again, like, did... Uh, did his overall writing team or writing ability just kind of decline over the years? Again, this is all, this is getting hypercritical of a movie that I think is largely very good. Um, It's just, uh, it's now dissecting why did it not perform and why does it not feel up to the standards of his other work? Yeah. I think for me, it's that you're combining Mel Brooks with Leslie Nielsen. You expect something profound because these guys are two comedy greats in their own right being put together um but i also think their comedy is very different yes yeah Um, no i i I would agree yep i I would i would definitely agree but for me leslie nielsen was a good was has always been a major selling point i was like if he was in something i was gonna watch it uh because he has he has never disappointed me and, and Leslie Nielsen, I think part of what makes him like so outstanding, especially in comedy roles, is he he was a straight actor, like uh, mm-hmm. like just you know, like a dramatic actor. He he was in uh, Forbidden Planet, like that that was one of his first roles was in this like you know kind of sci fi semi horror movie, uh, and uh, it's it, it, you know he used to be a, a a more serious character actor before he made the turn to uh, uh, comedy. And he's just, he's so good at being the straight man. He is. He's excellent. And he's very good at being like oblivious to the joke (laughs) is how I would describe it. And you see it in this movie too, where he's just the, 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 the facial expressions and how he has to deal with people just kind of being simpleton, (laughs) which culminates at the end with him going Renfield, you asshole. <laughs> when Renfield opens up the uh the blinds uh oh yeah <laughs> he just burns up and that's that's it game over Drac yeah uh i think that's the way he goes in the original is that he gets burnt up in the sunlight i'm i'm pretty sure yeah <clears throat> which for the record I don't know why there was never a Castlevania game where the final boss, instead of fighting Dracula himself, you were just supposed to fight the window. Like that's like the secret (laughs) way to to defeat the bosses. Instead of beating Dracula to death with your whip, you have to fight the window to open it up and defeat Dracula. That would have been an awesome like Easter egg in one of the, in one of the games is if you're trying to fight him and you're like, you can fight him and it takes like a long time, but then a gamer finds out one day that you can open up the window behind him (laughs) and it'll do like half damage. Exactly. There, there was a really cool, um, like this, what this reminds me of, this is a really cool hidden way to defeat a boss in super Metroid. It's an underwater battle battle. And it's a pain in the ass. This thing just, it takes a million hits. It's Dragon. But there are also these broken power nodes throughout Dragon's lair. And one of the things you can do is tempt the monster to, to pick you up, which is like almost a death sentence because it slams you against the ceiling, does a ton of damage. But if you can get it to pick you up, you can fire your grappling hook into one of the power nodes and it runs the electricity through you and electrocutes the boss to death. It's a really cool, like little 
you know, Easter egg way to, to defeat this, this enemy. And I'm just, I'm shocked. Nobody ever made the window a way to break, uh, breaking the window a way to defeat Dracula in a game. There you go. Get on it. Yeah. Somebody should Activision who has, yeah, (laughs) uh, I think it's Capcom. Uh, I don't know. That's a great question. I actually don't know. Whoever has it, do it. Whoever has it, you, you need to make this happen guys. Uh, Breath of the Wild did that kind of um, because you can go mm-hmm. fight Ganon straight away. Yeah. Um, but if you progress story wise through the game first, um, you know, all the uh, sages, guardians, champions, what are they called? Champions. Um, yeah. The champions. They, mm-hmm. Like their power automatically reduces like half his life force. It gives you a huge head start yeah. in that fight. Yeah. Because if you go up against Ganon with just like, a pot lid and a mop that's going to take forever. <laughs> that's a long ass battle. <laughs> you can do it. But it's going to take a long ass time. It's going to take a while. Yep. Um so what do we what do we think with this movie? Um do you think this is should someone try to revisit, let's not say remake this movie, but should should someone take another crack at trying to make a funny uh dracula movie i so i want to say yes because i think that there is a ton of potential um if you reach back into like you know the the marrow of of the dracula films i think that there is a lot in there that could be lampooned that could be you know like satirized i i think there's a ton of opportunity i am very concerned that as we have discussed in the past, we don't write movies like this anymore because the subtlety just it, it it's it's not what audiences are grasping for. Like and again, the what makes me what makes me so suspicious of whether or not this could be pulled off is the run of like epic movie, disaster movie, yeah. uh, you know, meet the Spartans, which just they they just got worse and that worse and sucked. worse and more and more stupid. Yeah. And like there, there's there's nothing funny. I, I don't I think there's nothing funny about them. I don't know. Maybe if I got really high, um, they'd they'd be worth a giggle or something like that. But um and if that's what like lampoon humor today looks like, I I, I would hate to see something like this revisited because I, I I think you you do more harm to the memory of it than you do good. And um, that's that that's my stance on it. So I I think that this, <laughs> I think that this franchise should be left dead and loving the fact that it's dead rather than try and uh, pull it back out of the grave and and revisit. I miss Leslie Nielsen. I do too. Is it tragic loss? That that guy was that was awesome. He he was something else. I also he was old my entire life, so I can't yes. say it was surprising when he did pass in 2010. Uh, but still, I know I, he was like what 91 or something like that. Like so. he was, yeah. yeah. He he was. I mean, I, the fact that Mel Brooks is still sparking around and he was born in 1926. I mean, he's coming up on 100 years old. You know, if the man can survive a few more years, uh, he will he'll, he'll cross the uh, the century mark. And that's that's a credit uh, just to, to him. In the on the cosmic connection front, uh, something yeah. that I find very interesting is that, um, you know, we're talking about Dracula, where the original novel we said was um, 
epistolary. It was told yep. through letters and diary entries uh, to form a narrative. And Mel Brooks' son, Max, uh, wrote World War Z, which is a story that's told across like a series of like interviews. Oh, and I have not read World War Z. Yet. You should read World War Z. Don't okay. let that film turn you off. <laughs> okay. I no, didn't realize he... that was Mel Brooks's son. Mm -hmm. Holy shit. That's awesome. Good for him. Yeah. No, he wrote, he wrote a zombie survival guide, which is very funny. Uh, yes. World War Z, which is um, very good. And then um, a couple of years ago, wrote a book called, oh, what's it called? Devolution, I think. It's oh, yeah. A, yep. A horror book about Sasquatch. Yeah. Um, also very, uh, very good. Very enjoyable reads. Um, so take a look at those. Okay. Uh, Ryan, I'm, I'm disappointed, man. Yeah. I have not found a way to organically work. <laughs> the Ninja Ninja Turtles Turtles Turtles. Podcast. <laughs> there was no way for me to do it. There, there, there really an hour. I know. I was going to say there, there, there just, there, there was not a way to, to bring them in. I mean, we've gone 11 episodes in a row now that we've managed to, to make it happen. And, uh, I guess technically we we did it now. Uh, yeah, we brought it up, but it, it's forced. It doesn't feel <laughs> well. Okay, but to be fair, the first couple of episodes where the Ninja Turtles were a discussion point was we we were talking about the release of Shredder's Revenge. We also talked about the release of uh, you know the the Cowabunga collection and all that. So there there mm -hmm. were you know like like just cultural moments that we were discussing. We didn't necessarily work it into conversation. I know. I know. Whatever, it's fine. <laughs> it's fine i'm waiting for i'm waiting for more news from the uh seth rogan uh production that's oh yeah, yeah coming yeah because uh, he's teased a logo which is you know the classic cartoon logo it's a good start um, yeah it is a good start it's funny i recently went back um because we decided next season spoiler listeners um one of the movies we'll we'll discuss is turtles 2 secret of the yep. Ooze. Um, I recently went cause it's free on Amazon prime right now and watched the current turtle turtles Two sequel out of the shadows, okay. because I remember taking a look at it and being like, Oh, you know, this is all right. I um, don't hate out of the shadows. Well, I went back and watched it again to be like, Oh, should we consider discussing yeah. this at some point? First half of the movie is perfectly decent. Second half of the movie. I'm like, no, I'm out. This movie sucks. <laughs> I was like, it's better than its predecessor. Right. But and maybe that's what I'm. Yeah. Yeah. But it's ugh, it sucks. I, and <laughs> I, I will say I I loved getting a being able to see Krang in a like in a live action way. Um, and I, I do think um, who, who the hell voices him? Um, uh, Brad Garrett. Um, I think no Brad shit. Garrett. Yeah, he yeah. I, he I think he does a great job voicing Krang. I was terribly disappointed in what the Technodrome turned out to be. I didn't. I was so like, fucking eh. stupid. Yeah, I'm not thrilled with that. But their treatment of Krang, where every time the turtles would like break one of his limbs because he's a robot, he can just attach a new one. I was like, that's actually that's really cool. That, that was kind of a creative like moment. And I, I would have liked to have seen more shit like that and less of 
I don't know, whatever the hell else went on in that movie. Yeah. <laughs> the everything else. The everything else, yeah. <laughs> Can someone tell me why Laura Linney decided to do that movie? Like, why? <laughs> Did she have kids, uh, like, asking her to do it? I don't... Uh, come on. <laughs> You're better than that. <laughs> Just... Uh... Anyway, all right. Yeah. There's our turtles moment. We did it. There's a yeah. We 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 got it. We got it in there. there. Was <laughs> next week. <laughs> next week. So, uh, real quick, um, some of the feedback that I've gotten uh, for for the podcast. Two things is one, uh, listeners would like to have a way to interact with us, uh, whether you know by sending questions or so. We we should we should talk about that. But two, being able to tee up what is coming next to give listeners a tease for uh, for the next episode with season two plotted out nicely and season three largely. Um, I think we'll be able to do that a little bit more. I'm very excited that we get to tease next week's episode today because next week next week episode is the magnum opus. It is the finale. It is. It is the big kahuna. <laughs> yes. <laughs> it is what this whole idea was founded on uh-huh a, a uh, just a perfectly adequate movie that nobody remembers well as soon as we say it people will be like oh yeah I um, <laughs> yeah. and i know plenty of you are going to be like why that movie uh and it's because this is what started it yes uh, our finale we're going to be discussing blue crush blue crush it's um Tune in, guys. It's going to be fun. It uh, really is. We should probably talk about the origin of this project in that episode. I'm like dying to talk about it right now. But um, yeah, this this whole thing has been inspired <laughs> by discussion about the movie Blue Crush. Oh, yeah. Yeah, 100 percent. And uh, I'm not going to try to hype it too much because I don't want people coming in and being like, oh, it's fine. It was fine. Yeah, that's true. Because <laughs> <laughs> uh, the movie's just it's fine. It is. Uh, it's perfectly adequate, but we're very excited and yes. uh, we are glad you guys have decided to come on this journey with us. And it's, um, it's been a blast. Like I, I am, I, I look forward to recording this every week. Um, it's, it's, I'll tell you what I have really enjoyed about, uh, about doing this podcast, Josh is intentionally sitting down and watching movies again, because so often like with the, I, I make this argument now about like music as well with the advent of streaming and, and everything. It's just so easy to have stuff on in the background that you only half pay attention to. And like, I, I wonder if movies that I've thought have been like unremarkable or just because I haven't been concentrating on them the way that, that we used to sit down and watch movies. What I love about doing this podcast is once a week sitting down and watching a movie and it just be what my focus is. And uh, I, I'm enjoying the hell out of that. Yeah. And it's kind of nice to look at the difference in storytelling. Yeah. Um, especially in an age where, you know, things are more and more like limited series mm -hmm. and you just binge 10 episodes <laughs> of something in one day. Yeah. Uh, and how that has shaped how we perceive storytelling when we go back yeah. to some of these movies where we were like, oh, that was kind of abrupt and quick. And you're like, well, that's the medium. Exactly. When you have 90 pages of a script to get a story across, you just could not waste time. Um, not like, you know, it, it, yeah, like an eight episode limited run where every episode is an hour long. And you're talking about 
oh God, I can't do math this early in the morning, but like 480 minutes worth of total content, which is almost 500 pages of script. It's a lot more time to develop things and, uh, and, and all that. And movies just used to be a little bit more perfunctory. Yeah. You go, you watch it. You have a good time. Move exactly. Your life. Pay right. too much for popcorn. <laughs> $75 for a box of raisinets. Yes. This podcast episode was brought to you by Halloween because that's today. <laughs> if we stick to our normal release schedule. Oh, we, we, we I will get this out on Halloween. Yes. I, I, if, if I have to skip another episode to make it happen, I, we are getting this one out on Halloween. <laughs> we should be all right. We should be. No, we should be. We're, 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 I think, I think it, uh, we're like three weeks ahead right now. So, uh, yeah, we've, we've got, we've, we've got plenty of time. The Olympics has sent me like a bunch of free calendars and I just wrote them on the calendar. <laughs> Uh, awesome <laughs> that's yeah. perfect <laughs> uh but i am excited to bring this all to a close um you know take a take a moment to watch some other stuff that's lagging behind yeah uh, actually tying this into vampire comedy um like i'm hilariously behind on what we do in the shadows oh me too um, wait and i and i love that show yeah. really want to get caught up yeah so i i need to i need to get on it i'm behind on that i'm behind on the orville um, like there's, there's a couple of shows out there that I, I'd like to be able to put some time and, and, and thought into actually watching, like we put time and thought into watching the, these movies. Also, I am committing to, because I, I enjoy our weekly, uh, like long form podcasting sessions. I'm committing to, I'm going to podcast the first Krogue book. And okay. so I'm, I'm going to maintain a, some sort of like recording schedule, but I am going to build a podcast out of beyond the great hall and, uh, and put that one out there. I am looking forward to hearing more about what that entails. It's going to be uh, fun. It's going to be real cool. But you guys don't get to hear it right now because this podcast Not is yet. over. Yeah, this <laughs> <laughs> Trick or treat. <laughs> <laughs> and we'll see you next week, guys. We'll see you all next week. Thanks for listening.